Good afternoon. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty member at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And I want to welcome you to uh, today's public conversation that's been convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School. Um, we are going to be uh, having a terrific conversation today. We're delighted to have you with us. And we want to let you know that you can join the conversation by submitting questions. You'll see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button. Uh, just click it, give us questions. We're gonna to get to as many as possible. It's a big part of the conversation today. I'm just thrilled to uh, be moderating today's conversation. We have with us David Axelrod, who's the founder and director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. He's also a well-known democratic political analyst and uh, was the chief strategist for Barack Obama's presidential campaigns. Thank you for joining us, David Axelrod. Great to be here, Larry, thank you. And we have with us also Vin Weber, who uh, was a former member of Congress from Southern Minnesota. He's also a partner at the Mercury firm in Washington. He's been um, a key part of the Humphrey School for more than two decades and a good friend of mine. Um, and I want to thank you, uh, Vin, for joining us. Vin is one of the most widely respected political strategists, someone that Democrats and Republicans and lots of other people go to for advice on what's going on in Washington. And we hope to benefit from that today, Vin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Larry. It's always a delight to be with you. Always a delight to be working with the Humphrey School and a special delight today to be with my friend, David Axelrod. Welcome, David. Thank you. So Likewise. I've got a bunch of questions here and then we'll jump into the questions that <clears throat> our friends are submitting. Uh, usually a presidential campaign, there's an agreement on what the fight is about. And there, you know, there's a fight over what that question is. And this year, it's the, the fight is over, is it a referendum on Donald Trump, the economy and the coronavirus? Is it a referendum on the Democratic Party and the the uh, portrayal of the Democratic Party as uh, consisting of left-wing mobs that are running rampant around the country. Uh, as Tom Emmer said in a recent conversation he had with us a week or so ago. Finn, how do you see this campaign? What is the fight about? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I do think it's largely a referendum on Donald Trump. Um, certainly the Democrats will would wisely want to keep it a referendum on, on Donald Trump. Normally, uh, the incumbent president would, if, you, if you're in Trump's position, you'd say, no, we don't want him to be a referendum on Trump. We want it to be a choice between Trump and Biden. I think that the Trump people have un, unsuccessfully tried to label Biden as an unacceptable alternative, and I just don't think that will work. Uh, he's been around too long. He's too respected. Everybody knows him to be a decent guy. And so, Larry, we go to your point, can the Trump campaign make it a choice not between Trump and Biden, but between Trump and a Democratic Party that has moved unacceptably to the left? Um, I think that there's ammunition for that, uh, both in what we see on the streets and in some of the policy proposals that are coming out of, out of many Democrats and, on, and increasingly out of the Biden camp itself. But it's a harder, more complicated message to deliver than simply to say the other guy is a bad guy. But I think that's what it's going to come down to, probably, 
Although in this environment, you know, as you mentioned, we, we got so many variables, COVID and the course of the economy and who, when, who knows what's going to happen in the streets in the course of the summer as we, we in Minneapolis know all too well. But I, I do think that it will end up being that the Trump campaign will make an attempt to have this be a choice between the incumbent president and a Democratic Party moving dangerously to the left. That's what they will try to frame this election as. David Axelrod, in uh, the 2012 election, uh, which uh, you were helping to steer, uh, you very successfully made the campaign a referendum on Mitt Romney. Uh, and it was a smart move because if you actually go back and look at uh, President Obama's approval ratings, they weren't great. There were still problems in the economy. They were just stuff lurking around. And instead you made the campaign uh, quite effectively uh, starting in the spring about Mitt Romney, his background in, as, a, um, as a consultant and the businesses and jobs that, that he restructured. Um, yeah. What did you do in 2012 that the Trump people are not succeeding with in 2020? Well, you know, to start off in a place that nobody would think I would start off, let me express some sympathy for the Trump campaign because it's very hard to make the race about your opponent when you're in the middle of a uh, epic pandemic that has consumed the country when you uh, and has devastated the economy. Um, this was before we got to the George Floyd uh, question. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that their intent was to turn this into a referendum and they were going to spend the, spend the spring and summer trying to define Biden in a negative way. Uh, but uh, that was robbed from them by, by the virus. And frankly, the president's handling of the virus has compounded uh, their problems in that regard. So every incumbent, very few incumbents can win a referendum uh, on themselves, especially in a closely divided country. Uh, Donald Trump did not win uh, a referendum on himself in 2016. He made it a choice and he was the least objectionable of the choices to many uh, voters. But now he is squarely the guy in the, in the barrel here because we are in the midst of this crisis. Um, and I, I would make one other point. Um, there was a reason that Donald Trump bought himself an impeachment trying to stop Joe Biden from becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party. Because whatever Biden's liabilities are, whatever his shortcomings, he is culturally inconvenient for uh, the Trump message. He is, he is a uh, old, white, working class, Irish Catholic guy from Pennsylvania, and he just simply isn't scary enough. Uh, for uh, Trump's purposes, uh, uh, because the Trump candidacy, the Trump politics, so much depends on kind of white identity politics. And you, the most interesting thing that I've seen recently was his speech in Tulsa, the president's speech in Tulsa, when he said he was attacking, as Vince suggested, is the strategy uh, attacking, you know, left-wing radicals who would tear down, uh, you know, our heritage and so on. And he said sort of parenthetically, now Joe Biden isn't a left-wing radical, but he's too weak and he'll be controlled by left-wing radicals. It's kind of a bank shot. I think it's a tough one to make right. stick. Um, David, yeah, that's, 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 that's up, my feeling too. Just pick up on a point Finn Weber made 
which is this effort to uh, uh, claim that Joe Biden is controlled by this uh, mob and socialist uh, Democratic Party. As you know, uh, in the 1960s, and particularly in 1968, uh, the violence in the streets and the sense that uh, there was racial discord in America was used by Richard Nixon quite effectively. And with uh, Donald Trump literally uh, borrowing slogans from the Nixon campaign, the law and order campaign uh, that Nixon ran, do you see that as a possible risk for the, for the Democrats up and down the line and including Biden that, that, that what's happened in Minneapolis and then elsewhere um, could, could hurt the Democrats? Yeah, there is, there is some risk, um, but it seems to me that Biden has displayed an awareness of that. He very quickly uh, renounced the idea of defunding police. He uh, very quickly uh, renounced the idea of taking down uh, statues uh, of the founding fathers and so on. Um, so that says to me that he is aware of the possible risks. I'd also say, you know, the public hasn't really come along um, with this notion. I mean, yes, there were riots uh, associated with the aftermath of George Floyd. Uh, but if you look at polling, most people still see the protesters as uh, virtuous and trying to promote uh, a public good. Um, and so, you know, he's got work to do to try and depict it. Otherwise, I think the bigger problem for the president is it's hard to be the law and order president when you're not particularly uh, you're not particularly eager to, in all cases, to follow the law. But more than that, when disorder follows you, and you know, no, there's nothing about the Trump presidency at this point that suggests order. What you see is chaos. And so, uh, you know, Richard Nixon was not the incumbent president back in 1968. That was a tremendous advantage. He also had George Wallace as a wingman. Uh, that was a tremendous tremendous uh, advantage. So, um, you know, Trump is invoking those symbols, but he's in a different situation. And I think every time he goes out and is provocative around the race issue, when he embraces, you know, people who shout white power or uh, when he uh, embraces the Confederate flag and so on, um, I think there are a lot of voters in the middle, sort of moderate voters who might be accessible to him, who say, He's, he's talking about law and order, but he's pouring kerosene on the fire here. And why is he doing that? So I think he's Weber, defeating his own purpose there. Yeah, Finn Weber, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with David up to a point, but I do think, I mean, I, obviously with anything we're talking about in July, we have to put the caveat on that there's a while to yes. go before the election. 100%. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't want to repeat that over and over on all the things we're going to talk about today. I do think on the that that's a critical question on the attitude of the public toward the protests and what's going on in the streets, because certainly as of now, David is right. They've seen it largely as a justice protest. And maybe that's as long as that continues, it's probably helpful to Biden. But. You know, if we, we've seen in, in various cities, in Minneapolis, the one I know best, we we're hearing loud voices talking about the increase in crime and violence, voices coming out of the African-American community in Minneapolis. We saw some of the, those voices also in New York City and in Seattle. If that continues 
to be a problem, it's entirely possible the public's attitude toward this will shift not not away from supporting justice and dealing with some of the problems that have been articulated by Black Lives Matter, but toward a concern for their own security. And let me pick up on something you just said. And you, you hear it in the media uh, coverage all the time, which is still plenty of time. And obviously, there's four months now until, or a little less than four months <coughs> until Election Day. But on the other hand, uh, there are states that are going to open up voting in a bit more than two months. Um, and we are starting to see patterns uh, start to settle in. The president's behind by nine or 10 points. Uh, the economy and the coronavirus, uh, there may be some positive movement, but I think as we started to see the summer unfold and we can get a little more of a glimpse of the fall, it doesn't look like there's going to be a miraculous, you know, economic revival. And all the indications are that the coronavirus is going to be with us for some time, including during the fall when there may actually be a flu uptake. And then you start going through some of the internals on the polls and across a lot of the subgroups, including those that Donald Trump did very well with in 2016. Um, he's fallen behind. Perceptions seem to be, getting established on the coronavirus and the economy, his advantages on the economy. They're there, but they used to be double digits. Now they're like two or three points. So yes, yeah, still time, but are things starting to lock in where you can start to see patterns? Um, you know, I remember I running for re-election once in the middle of a recession a long time ago, and I talked to, and we're, we're getting ready for the 4th of July recess, and I talked to an old Democrat from the South, and I said, what do you think? You think this economy is going to improve in time for us to, to, to affect the election? And he said, we have a saying around here, the cake is in the oven by the 4th of July. And he said it with an appropriately Southern accent, which I'm not going to try to emulate. But that used to be kind of the conventional wisdom that attitudes towards the economy were pretty much set by about now. And that things were not going to, unless you had the economy fall off a cliff, for instance, but, it, but, but, but most people would have made their minds up about the economy by now. That may, be, if, that may be the case. And if it is the case, it's probably not enough of an advantage for Trump to overcome some of his other liabilities. But again, that's, I, I'm not, we can't be sure about the course of the economy. There's been some very positive uh, development in the last few weeks. There's also the negative news about the surge in, in infections, which and, and, and re increased uh, concern about how that's going to affect the economy going forward. But uh, we, just, we just really don't know that. I, I, I think that it's an indispensable element of Trump's message. If he cannot argue by the time we get to October that he's the best, that the economy is, at, is improving and he's the one that can guide it to a better future, he's not going to win. That's, that's, the, everything else is sort of stacked against him that has been his strength, and it still is a marginal strength, but as you point out, Larry, it's not nearly as strong as it used to be. And the COVID thing has caused him to rupture a lot of support, uh, in particularly among older women, um, where he was quite strong. He's not so much anymore. David Axwell, I'm curious. Uh, yeah. When you think yeah. about probabilities of candidates pulling things out, um, you know, we go back to January, and I think 
most people would have yeah. said favors Trump. Um, yes. Are we getting to a point though where these patterns are starting to set in? It's not impossible for Donald Trump to win. He'd be the first incumbent to overcome the deficit he's in, but you know things happen. But are the odds shifting against them decidedly? Well, I think that if you look at the betting markets, uh, you know they have shifted very strongly against him, and they were with him uh, through the beginning of the year. You're quite right. It's a, it's good that you brought up uh, the beginning of the year because uh, I want to associate myself with Vin's uh, point, and I do this not just out of a cowardice about making predictions, but because I think it's very valid. Uh, you know, four months ago, the president was passed his impeachment and uh, the economy was strong. His approval ratings were creeping up toward uh, the upper 40s. And, uh, and he very much looked like a favorite to win re-election, as most presidents are. Uh, but COVID came. And I think he had an opportunity, had he handled COVID in a in a, you know, the, the, the old mayor Daley used to say, uh, good government is good politics. This was a case where good government really would have been good politics. And, you know, the president just couldn't pull that off. His problem right now relative to the economy is I think that people are willing to acknowledge that the economy was strong before the virus and they gave him some credit for it. Uh, the problem he has now is that the economy is hostage to the virus and he looks completely oblivious to the virus. Uh, so that's going to uh, sort of a core issue of competence here. You can't revive the economy without the re dealing with the virus. And he seems to feel like if we just deny the virus that we can bring the economy back. And so and I, as you point out, Larry, I don't think the virus is going to get better su sufficiently between now and November that those those conditions are going to change. So, I mean, I, I you know, uh, there, I don't I don't know what other tools Donald Trump has in his tool shed, but he's pulled out a shovel and he's been digging for several months here and he's put himself in a very deep hole and it would be we would it would take unforeseen events, it seems to me. I think the scenario uh, Vin uh, painted is one. The other one that they're playing for is that Biden shows himself to be uh, deficient, um, you know, that his mental acuity isn't what it should be. And they'll make the case that yeah. only Trump can bring us back. Um, but, you know, one thing about, and I'll make this last point, I'm sorry to filibuster, uh, hmm. on COVID-19, you know, th when, it, when it first happened, my, uh, my thought was, this could be a real problem for Biden because if Trump handles it well and Biden is stuck in his basement, uh, then uh, Trump could really make up a lot of ground and maybe put this thing away. What happened instead was Biden was stuck in his basement. The spotlight was on Trump and he invited the spotlight and the spotlight was unflattering uh, to him and put him in a much deeper hole. So COVID-19 has basically given Biden a chance to kind of hang back and let Trump have the spotlight, made it much harder for Trump to turn it into a binary race. And there's a, a piece in, your, in the Washington Post uh, last week that was quoting uh, Trump campaign officials who said that they were counting on Americans growing numb of the spreading coronavirus and the death tolls. Uh, one of them said, quote unquote, that Americans will come to live with the virus do you think that works for a campaign? 
Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. It, it, may, it may be true, though. I mean, there, there's, that's not medically necessarily off base that, that, we, that we're going to have to deal with. I, I think, and I want to add to something, add a point to what David said. I, I, I don't disagree with the likely course of the virus, and I think that's a problem for the president. But there's one other element that you have to at least think about, and that is possible breakthroughs that could come in terms of treatments and, and vaccines. And the, the administration has put a lot of money behind that, and they have uh, cleared the regulatory path for it through the FDA. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a biologist or a doctor, so I'm certainly not going to predict anything, but that could change that formula just a little bit. If we actually did see a real breakthrough in diagnostics and treatments and vaccines before the election, which is at least a possibility. The argument that we have to live with it, however, is not a very good political argument. Let yeah, me, uh, think, let me just say, I, for the, Larry, let me just say, first of all, every one of us should hope that that happens. Every one of us should hope that there are treatments. Every one of us should hope that the, that there is a, uh, that there's a vaccine sooner rather than later. And, um, you know, I, I did a, a podcast this week with Atul Gawande, the great uh, doctor, medical writer, uh, who, you know, was quite critical of the administration's handling, up, but up on this issue of vaccines and the acceleration of this. So, and I have no doubt then that Donald Trump will announce a vaccine between now and November, whether there is one or not. But the reality is, and Gawande spoke to this, the, the execution of it, even on an accelerated basis, is not going to, we're talking about a probably a year and a half, two year proposition, not a a month and a half or two month uh, uh, proposition. I think that we are going to have to live with a virus. Uh, the question is, how do we live safely, as safely as we can with a virus? And the, pre the president could choose two paths. One is to be the guy who is leading the country through that process of opening up safely. He chose a different path, and now they're paying a price for it in places like uh, Florida and Texas and Arizona and frankly, Tulsa. And, uh, and I think that is what is, uh, that is where he's really gotten politically off the path. Then I'm, I'm curious, uh, obviously the president, when he started running back five years ago for president and throughout his first term in office, he's continued to play to his base. And so mm -hmm. we see this ethnic nationalism, these racial appeals, it hasn't really ever changed. He seems okay with being a president where a majority of Americans don't approve of his performance. Um, and the response of Republicans, so I respect, is don't get lost in the kind of mass public opinion. Our strategy is base turnout. We think we can, yeah. if we turn out Donald Trump's base, plus, you know, some other uh, group of independents who respect the president's strength and, and leadership. Do you think that's viable? Probably not. Uh, it's a little surprising that a, that a builder would not understand that the purpose of having a strong base is so you can build something on top of it. Uh, but he doesn't seem to understand that. And it's, uh, you know, I, you're right that, that the strategy is to have the most, and historically more effective campaign and turning out your votes than we've ever seen before. I think that there is a marginal truth to that. 
I think incumbent presidents, the last three presidents, have always had a little bit of an advantage because they've got four years to build their organization and raise money and do those things. Certainly, President Obama had an advantage over Romney in that regard. President Bush had an advantage over John Kerry in that regard. That's just how an incumbent president, that's the advantage of not having to clear the primary field and waste a lot of time on opponents within your own party. So he's got a very strong campaign technologically, from what I can see. And they probably can turn out a stronger base vote than normally we would we would see in politics. Whether that, and that could overcome a two or three point deficit, but not a nine or ten point deficit, which is what we're seeing in most of the polls today. And in long term for the Republican Party, I just have to say it's a it's a bad thing because the you know the Republicans long term. I still believe in that old study that was done after we lost to President Obama that basically said Republicans have to figure out ways of becoming competitive in minority communities and, and urban communities. That's, that's not only a good political strategy. It's, it's really the only way you, sh- you can govern a country and, and, and do good for the people you represent. And I would say that, that is the path for America. Our politics yeah. service when both parties have that mindset. David Axelrod, I want to ask you about something you published a couple months ago in the New York Times. Uh, it was kind of a warning shot to, um, to Joe Biden, who's coming out of a primary battle and was the presumptive uh, candidate nominee. You, you warned that he was mired in the basement. He wasn't prepared for the Trump onslaught. He was, uh, he'd found himself on the outside looking in and just wouldn't cut it. Uh, you go on to say he's got to pick up the pace. He's got to be much more proactive and responding um, and with great speed. And now here we are in July. And I think the Trump campaign would even acknowledge that that this kind of basement strategy has been pretty smart because it's let the focus be on Donald Trump. And as one of the Trump officials put it, it's really hard to land a punch on Joe Biden. You can't see him. Right. Yeah. No, um, I, uh, I think that the, the basement strategy was one of necessity in some ways, and it's worked out to his advantage, largely because of the way that Trump has behaved. If, as I said, you know, my concern, and I wrote this with David Pluff, our concern at the time were two. One was that, um, that Biden had no platform to uh, really engage in the discussion about COVID. And this was just about the time when the president was starting his daily briefings. Had the president used those daily briefings the way governors across the country had uh, to really inform the public on the challenges and the need for uh, sacrifice and uh, the path forward, uh, instead of turning them into versions of his uh, rally speeches, he, he, I think it would have been problematical for Biden. And I had a caveat in that piece that said just that. It could be that these things end up being a negative for the president and not a positive. But the other thing was that we just, we were urging that they pick up the pace in terms of their digital campaigning, in terms of their fundraising, in terms of reacting in the moment rather than the day after when the president does things. And you know, they have a brilliant campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon. She had just arrived when we published that piece. Um, she could have written that piece herself, and she's writing the handbook for how to do this uh, over at the campaign now. And I think they've been 
they, they get stronger every day. And you can see Biden is, is reacting in the moment. His speech um, uh, in the wake of George Floyd was very powerful. His speech recently on COVID uh, was well-timed and powerful. Um, and his in the moment rejoinders have been very powerful. So they've picked their game up uh, and they deserve all the credit for that. Okay. And um, except for the credit that Donald Trump deserves for helping them. The, nonetheless, the uh, Trump campaign has quite an advantage in terms of their, uh, their digital operation, in terms of their ability to mobilize people and volunteers to get out the vote. Um, uh, and there's still a sense that Joe Biden, when he does engage, is not always his most effective uh, spokesperson. There was that comment after the Minneapolis uh, riots where Joe Biden said, yes, the police shouldn't be shooting at people's faces when I shoot at their legs. Uh, and these kind of comments just seep out uh, from Biden. And if you, there's a microscope on the guy, it's going to get picked up. You still have worries about the Biden campaign, both the organization and the candidate? I'm not sure at this juncture, if this becomes a contest of who says the, uh, the most impolitic or incoherent thing that Biden will come up on the short end uh, of that campaign. But uh, I, I will say that um, uh, I think they have to be vigilant because we don't know what's going to happen in the next four months. Um, I do think that uh, a subset, uh, you know, Trump has gone full kind of race culture uh, right now, but there, there's a subset argument, which is that Biden isn't up to this and he can't turn the economy around and so on. They've got to actively push back and offer people assurance uh, on those issues. But I would point this thing, you, you mentioned their digital campaign. Vince said something very important. We, we, these things are very, very important in races that are close, in states that are close. They are the field goal team, okay? Right. That, uh, but you have to get down the field long enough so that that matters. Right now, on the average, in Michigan, uh, which he uh, Trump won by a few thousand votes, he's down 11 points. He's down 10 in Wisconsin, eight in Pennsylvania, seven in Florida. Digital is not going to close uh, that gap. And you know, here's one big problem, and I'll turn it over to uh, to uh, Vin. But there are four groups that Trump won last time: uh, independents, suburban voters, seniors, and college. Uh, educated white voters. He's losing all of them now. He's losing the suburbs by more than 20 points, a group that, uh, a, a, a cohort that he won uh, last time. And most importantly, uh, you know, among those voters who have negative ratings of both candidates, he won overwhelmingly, like uh, more than two to one against Hillary Clinton in 2016. He's losing by the same margin among those voters in 2020. So it's not even enough to disqualify uh, or, or, or tarnish Biden, he's got a problem with these voters. And now he's the incumbent and they've made a judgment about him. So I'm not saying that Trump can't win this election and you never write a guy off who's willing to do anything as I think he is. Uh, we also have questions about the vote and how that's gonna go. But, um, but there are awful, if you were a doctor looking at this, you would be very worried about your patient. Finn Weber, do you wanna respond? I, I think that that's largely true. Um, I, I back to Biden. I, I, I first of all, I just want to make make it clear. I don't have any uh, sympathy for the 
demeaning of Biden as mentally unfit or anything like that. I, that's not true. And I don't, you know, I want to make it clear, I don't have any sympathy for that argument. But I want to go back to the argument. And I, I don't think that Biden is the problem for Biden. The problem for Biden is other democratic voices around the country creating a chorus, as we talked about earlier in this broadcast, about the party moving to the left. The problem is Bernie Sanders saying yesterday or today that Joe Biden is going to be, quote, the most progressive president since FDR, which Republicans would define as the most left-wing president since FDR. The problem is, Larry, our own Congresswoman Ilhan Omar promising that we are going to transform every aspect of American society as she did a couple days ago. And no one of those things is going to sink the Biden campaign. But if there's a chorus of that that goes on, and if Trump is smart enough to take advantage of it, that creates the problem for Joe Biden, not Joe Biden himself. David Axelrod, you've dealt with this issue for a long time of the, the great diversity of democratic views uh, from left to uh, more centrist. Is uh, Vin got a sore point for the Democrats? Is this a threat to Joe Biden? I think if, if Joe, first of all, I'd say two things about it. If Joe Biden allows the, 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 most, uh, uh, the most extreme voices in the party to define him, uh, then he puts himself in some jeopardy. I mean, that would be the way to get back some of these suburban voters, some of these independent voters. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, he hasn't given any evidence of that. As I said, he was quick to jump on a couple of provocations uh, earlier, and I imagine that he will be uh, that he will be uh, vigilant about that. The other thing I wanted to say is, um, I'd be careful about applying a uh, a 1990s or even a 2000 kind of uh, or uh, 2010 kind of prism to some of these issues because things that may have seemed uh, utopic and radical uh, in 2000 and, 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 and 1990 uh, may seem completely different now. Healthcare is a good example. Uh, I think that there is a real appetite for uh, additional health reform in, in the country right now. I don't think Biden runs much, much risk uh, about at a time when people are being thrown uh, out of work and left without uh, uh, coverage. I think that there's an appetite uh, for that. I think there's an appetite for a, a, a major kind of infrastructure and jobs program uh, in this country. So I think there's running room for a progressive platform, but you have to monitor uh, some, of the, some of the excesses that Vin, uh, that Vin speaks of. And, you know, and ultimately the question is gonna be, are people going to look at Joe Biden and say, you know, he's going to be a vehicle for others. He's not going to be in charge. Um, I think, uh, I think again, I think it's, it's a bank shot and it's very hard to accomplish. David Axelrod, I want to ask you a quick question and then move on and talk about the conventions. Um, obviously, in 2016, some of the polls were off a bit, particularly in Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, though they were more accurate nationally when you looked at the overall average. But we've got several questions here saying, are we paying too much attention to the polls? Uh, could they be off? Could voters, because of 
uh, their reticence to be associated with Donald Trump, who some see as a racist, uh, could that be depressing the level of support for Donald Trump? Um, you just tick through a whole bunch of polls. How much faith do you put in them? Well, what I tick through is a bunch of, a bunch of averages of polls. So I have more faith in those than I do in, you know, some polls are more reliable uh, than others. But what is striking is the consistency of these polls, uh, you know, over the last uh, sort of six weeks or so. I think if you look back, I think a line of demarcation may have been the uh, the night after uh, the 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 the, uh, the Lafayette Park fiasco uh, for Trump, but the race opened up after that, and it's not closed uh, since then. So I have some level of confidence in them, but you know it's a cliche to say polls are just a snapshot in time. Things will happen between now and then that could uh, affect these polls. So yeah, I I have uh, I have a comp. Uh, confidence that this is where the race is uh, right now. But let me just make one other point. Um, you know, I talked before about the chaos surrounding Trump. One of the qualities that Biden, through his demeanor, his gray hair, his experience, uh, has projected uh, during this period is a sense of kind of stability. Uh, now, you know, Vin presents a, a, a portrait that if it took hold, fights against that. And this is, you know, Trump is advertising these dystopic ads about you, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. But I think one of the, you know, one of the great strengths that Biden has going into this, that, you know, this, these crises have amplified some strengths of his empathy, decency, and basic experience and stability, which I think is comforting to people at a time in which things seem out of control and the president himself seems a little bit out of control. Then, uh, as you know, since the 1970s, the uh, Democratic and Republican Party national conventions have lost some of the relevance because you have primaries and essentially the nominee is selected by the primary voters or the caucus goers. So now we're in a state when uh, we're either not going to have a live convention or it's going to be uh, quite abbreviated. A lot of it is going to be virtual. Do the conventions matter? Are they going to have an impact? Um, not much. I, I think it's a, I think to, to continue the analysis that I've sort of put out here, I think it's an advantage to Biden to not have a traditional Democratic convention because they're going to, if you have a traditional Democratic convention, you'll have some focus on the writing of the platform which always is dominated by activists in both parties and would be dominated by the most lefty activists in the Democratic Party. You'll have to put a lot of people on the podium to give speeches, many of them. Convention, I think it, it is an advantage, small advantage to Biden to not have a conventional conven conventional convention, if you will. Um, but Trump, as we know, that's the, the only way he campaigns. He has to have a big audience and give a big speech. And, and uh, I, I think, I don't know how much, what kind of an impact it's going to have, but I, he, that's, he can't really run a campaign without that. That's why there's such controversy about him holding his rallies in the midst of the virus and things like that. But there's, there's, I mean, Biden seems pretty comfortable campaigning virtually from his basement. That's fine. I don't think Trump would. Uh, David Axelrod, going back to your New York Times piece a couple months ago, you 
uh, said, hey, there was just this uh, fundraising uh, effort for the coronavirus called One World Together at Home. He said, hey, why not take advantage of this? Let's create entertaining, impactful virtual programming. Um, and I've been hearing that there have been efforts by folks in the music industry and in Hollywood to work with the Trump folks, and they're basically uh, not that interested. They'd rather do something much more sedate. Is that the right way to go? Well, look, I think what the Trump people are responding to is Trump. I think Trump wants, he wants to give that big speech. He wants an arena filled with people. He, that he, he thrives on that. I think this is a tremendous opportunity, frankly, uh, for uh, for either party, but I think for, for Democrats who have embraced it, this is going to be an opportunity because the, these conventions are an anachronism. They create the problems that Vin speaks of. They're also, frankly, uh, you know, you have to accommodate all these uh, bloviating politicians who want time on the platform. No uh, they, they're, there's not, they're not, they're just they're an anachronism. They don't have a real purpose because you've already nominated uh, a candidate. What they are is the, the only thing that matters is the TV show you produce and how many people watch it. And if, these, if Democrats can produce good TV that's entertaining and keep people watching, that includes music and, 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 and film and uh, is not just a bunch of bloviating politicians, that could be a real advantage for Biden. It also, frankly, cuts down on his, on the burden on him to give a 30 or 45 minute speech, which you're not going to do in this kind of, uh, in this kind of a format. And it can present, he can present himself in the best possible light. So uh, it doesn't disturb me that uh, this thing, I, I think this could be an actual, this may be one of the things that COVID-19 produces that is positive, <laughs> which is we finally update these conventions so that they are uh, that they are watchable and entertaining and not just, you know, per, per, uh, sort of anachronistic. But David Axelrod, I think uh, you've just raised the bar for the Democratic convention, which is about a month away. And um, what I'm hearing from folks is that the Biden people are not that interested in this kind of, you know, transformational model of what a convention would look like. Uh, maybe you've heard. No, I don't think things. that's true. No, I don't think so. I think they're working very hard at, at this. Okay. And I, I, I think that I, my sense is that they're going to, I don't mean, you know, uh, I'm just excited about the fact that uh, there could be something uh, new here and, and interesting. The main thing is in a convention is, do you, do you define what the race is about? Do you give, in, in Biden's case, and this is true almost with every challenge, you know, Biden's been around for a long time, but he's not all that well known to people, they, they know the basics, but they don't know a, a, a lot. And so you wanna make sure that they leave the convention with a much richer appreciation for who Joe Biden is. Uh, and of course, there'll be some contrast with, with Trump. So you want people to leave there with a richer understanding of not just Biden, but what the race is about. And, and uh, you know, you can, if, you, if you're not sort of tethered to the old platform, you can actually produce television vision shows that are more effective. And that's, that's what I anticipate. Okay. Uh, yeah, on, Trump, Larry, <laughs> on, Trump, on Trump, though, uh, Vin, on Trump, um, you know, in addition to whether or not Trump appearing for 45 minutes is the, 
the most effective way to promote his candidacy at this time. Um, you know, we now have the city of Jacksonville, which is under siege. They already got driven out of North Carolina. And now we're closing in on the date. And if COVID is still raging at that time, the story is as much going to be about Trump flouting, uh, flouting the, you know, the, the guidance on COVID as it is about Public his safety. campaign. Right. Uh, so, right. Yeah, so I that's, think that's a problem. No, that's not the story you want, <laughs> no question. It's yeah. it's a risk, but I, you know, I come I come back to it. You, you, every you've done a lot of campaigns, David, and you can't make a candidate into something that he's not. And Trump has some strengths. He's a, he is a television. He's a pretty good large audience performer, but to try to make him into something other than that, I think is is doomed to fail. Now you've identified big risks in terms of trying to do a big mass event in the middle of the pandemic. And I don't disagree with that at all. But the Trump campaign doesn't really have many other options. They can try to put together a, a, the kind of show that you talked about for the Democrats, but it'll be making Trump into something other than what he is. And he's pretty well defined as what he is. Yeah. Uh, then I want to ask and you yeah, and Frankly, Demo Demo Democrats have more, frankly, Democrats have more access to creative Hollywood type talent to work on a project like yeah. this as well. Right. Uh, then I want to ask you about what the campaign's going to look like. We're used to a campaign that kind of starts out um, uh, with a, you know, modest pace in September, and then it kind of builds a crescendo uh, in early November. But of course, with the number of, of uh, ballots that are being mailed in, uh, because of vote by mail and absentee voting, which is going to explode. It's going to be yeah. many fold uh, larger than we've ever seen. Uh, the campaign and voting is going to start in mid-September. So what's the kind of campaigning for the fall that you're anticipating? Well, we've never, we've never quite seen it, although it's been developing along the lines you talked about for some time as different states and localities allow more voting over a longer period of time. Uh, I, I, I think the campaigns have to figure out how to impact on an ongoing basis as opposed to, you know, we used to, you know, let's see the, the most negative ads pulled out in the last couple of weeks of the campaign to impact late deciders. That's not really going to work anymore. First of all, ads are not necessarily the way that you communicate anymore, but it's, it's gotta be an, there has to be an ongoing, Effort. I, I have to say, first of all, I, I disagree with my party's critics of vote by mail. I think you can have safe means of voting, and you know, I I, I disagree with the Republicans in Minnesota when they when they oppose same day registration, and same day registration has worked out just fine. I do have to say, I I am I lament a bit the fact that we don't have an election day. To the, in the sense that we used to. Not because I'm afraid of all sorts of fraud leading up to it, but just because it kind of was a national day of, uh, of coming together and around a decision. And now those decisions are made over a period of months, as you pointed out. And, you know, maybe that's just fine, but it, make, it leaves me, maybe I'm just nostalgic for the way we used to do business, but I don't like it. David Axelrod, isn't it an advantage to Democrats, uh, particularly with the harder to reach uh, Democrats are going to have to be uh, registered because registration, of course, was off January to April by large amounts. 
because the mail-in ballot process is complicated. You've got to apply for a ballot, then you've got to get the ballot and fill it out correctly. Um, is this an advantage for Democrats because they have more time to literally get the ballots uh, in the bag? Um, well, first of all, let me say, I'm bewildered why Republicans, uh, you know, to Vin's point, why Republicans are so, I think Trump has done himself a disservice here because he's tarnished mail-in voting, which Republicans in my experience have always been better at using than yes. Democrats. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think uh, this is good. This could end up being a big uh, mistake for him. Um, and secondly, I'd say to your point, Larry, um, you know, one of the concerns among Democrats about the suggestion that it be all mail-in voting is that it, there are those hard to reach voters you're talking about uh, are not necessarily ones who are going to respond to mail-in voting and they're more likely to vote at a polling place. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, but I think in a in a country where you're overrun by a pandemic, it just makes common sense to say those who don't feel comfortable coming to the polling place ought to have the option of, yeah. of voting by mail. And, um, you know, I, I don't know organizationally whether it will favor uh, Democrats uh, or uh, or Republicans in the end. I just know that it is, um, you know, for the sake of, of uh, the fundamental principle that every person should have the opportunity to vote. Um, it is essential. And, um, you know, I hope that, you know, the Congress has not appropriated the money to help states uh, with this process, but I hope that we do it. And I hope that, you know, the last concern on this, not just what happens on election day, but what happens after election day, if the election is close, uh, you know, California counts their absentee ballots for several weeks after an election. If other states are cap counting absentee ballots for days or weeks after the election and we don't have a verdict on election day, that will lend itself to uh, charges about the integrity of the election. And uh, I think it would be, you know, for the Vladimir Putins of the world, a, a gift, uh, you know, and for anyone else who wants to disdain the uh, who wants to disparage our process process so that is my bigger yeah. concern which is how the process is run well first off that that's a valid concern the loser you know, the, david's totally right about that whoever loses is surely going to interpret that period of time when we count votes after election day as being rigged against them Probably won't be. I think we have honest elections in this country. I, I don't buy either the arguments about voter fraud that I hear from Republicans or voter suppression that I hear from, from Democrats. But I think it's not hard to convince the losing the supporters of the losing candidate that something in the system has been rigged. And we got enough distrust in our system right now. We don't need any more. Uh, for sure, we're going to have a delay in the counting of the ballots. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, given the number of ballots that are being mailed in. But David Axelrod, let me ask you about one of the consequences of this explosion in mail-in ballots, which is that election offices, which are running on a very tight budget, Congress didn't approve the $1 billion that election officials said, they are having to economize. And that means that in larger cities, they have fewer uh, in-person uh, election spots. We saw some of that during the primary uh, so we're looking at election day, particularly for the voters you were just talking about, who are, could well be waiting in line on a cold day 
for quite some time. Yeah, no, it's a big it's a big concern. And by the way, Larry, it's not just budget that causes the uh, consolidation of polling places. Uh, it's also the fact that it's hard to uh, it's hard to line up election judges uh, right. at a time when people are afraid to be exposed uh, in public. And you know, I I uh, I don't want to ruin Finn's reputation by agreeing with him too much, <laughs> but. Um, but I agree with mo mostly everything he said. I do think voter suppression is a problem in parts of this country. Uh, and one way to suppress a vote is to uh, narrow down the number of polling places to the point where people have to travel great distances to vote and then have to wait five hours or six hours or seven hours online to vote. That shouldn't happen in the United States of America. It does worry me. And as for the discrediting of the election, you know, one of my worries about the president is I, I, I honestly think the way he's positive this election are is that there are basically two outcomes. Uh, one is that Trump wins and the other is that the election was stolen. The, the least likely alternative is that the president of the United States is going to come out and humbly say, the people have spoken and I accept their verdict. Those are words I do not expect to hear. Yeah. Uh, we're uh, running out of time. I want to get to a couple more topics. Okay. Finn Weber, is Donald Trump toxic? down ballot, Senate candidates, congressional candidates, state house races? He's becoming uh, much more toxic than he was. I mean, it's the, in some places it's clear that he is. I mean, in, in suburban uh, areas, we saw that in the 26, uh, 2018 elections with Republican losses in suburban areas, mainly tied to Trump's unpopularity in what had been traditionally Republican suburban areas. I think that that's I think that's very very dangerous for Republicans down ballot. I I but I also think I mean I I I watch and listen to the arguments about how Republican candidates need to separate themselves from the president, and there's some evidence that they're trying to do that. I just don't think that that usually works. Uh, I've no. I've watched it. I've I've not participated in it because I didn't try to separate myself from the Republican presidents when I was running, but it's very, very hard to effectively separate yourself from the president of your own party, unless you are an extraordinarily skilled and uniquely identified candidate in your own right. So it sounds like Finn, yeah. what you're saying in effect is that if the race is starting to gel with Donald Trump behind by, you know, some margin, the Republican majority in the Senate is very much at risk. Oh, absolutely. No question it's at risk. I, if, I mean, again, if the election were held today and we know that it's not, uh, they would lose the Senate. And I, it's, I, the only caveat I put on it is the, the candidates that are struggling on the Republican side are good candidates. I mean, we've been through election cycles where, you know, you look at the, the, the roster of candidates that you incumbents that you have to defend and you think, how did those people ever get elected in the first place? Well, that's not the case this time. And we have some very endangered Republican candidates who may well lose, but they are good candidates. Cory Gardner in Colorado is behind, but he's a very good candidate. Tom Tillis in North Carolina is behind, but he's a very good candidate. Susan Collins in Maine is behind. She's a very, these are not people that you look at and say they're losers that shouldn't have been there in the first place, and they may be able to pull it out. David, I think the question. It. I think I, th I think the question, Larry, is um, for uh, you know how Trump 
performs in those states. It's going to be very hard for those candidates to win if Trump is underperforming, uh, you know, where he performed in 2016 and where Republicans are expected to perform. And the question I have is if things keep going in this way, and we've been very assiduous about stipulating that things can happen, things can change. If they keep going in this way, are we looking, is it more likely to be a year like 1980, where Senate candidates who you never expected to be in jeopardy end up being in jeopardy because the president has put them in a hole? Uh, it's much more likely that we're going to be in that direction at this point, it seems to me, than that uh, that, that Republicans will retain the Senate. Uh, one of our last questions here, um, David Axelrod, um, what would be your advice to the Biden campaign about the vice presidential uh, choice? Gee, I was hoping that we ran out of time. Um, <laughs> you know, look, I, I mean, my, my fundamental view is a very traditional one, which is the most important thing is does he feel a level of comfort with that candidate? Does he feel like he can make a straight face argument for that candidate as a potential, as a vice president, but also as a potential president, which I think is gonna be even more important in 2020 because Joe Biden will be 78 years old uh, when he takes office. And he's, he's hinted, though he hasn't said, but it's logical that he probably wouldn't be a candidate in 2024. So the person he picks, he's, he's not just picking a vice presidential candidate, he's likely picking a presidential nominee in 2024. Um, so I think those those matter. Obviously, there are other considerations. He's already said he, he'll pick a woman. I think there's enormous pressure to pick uh, a candidate of, of color. Uh, and um, you know, but at the end of the day, whomever he picks, whether it's a black candidate or a white candidate or a Hispanic candidate or an Asian candidate, it ought to be someone who he is comfortable with. And he knows the job better than anyone. His relationship with Barack Obama was uh, really extraordinary and it was important. Uh, and I think he's going to want that, that same kind of relationship with his vice president. Did I evade the question adequately, Larry? Yeah, good well, job. I'm just going to try to build it down evading. a little bit more. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Thank you. Uh, are you expecting someone who's currently serving in the House or the Senate to be the VP? That is, you just went through these criteria. Obviously, if you're in the Senate or the House, you're more likely to have that ability to step in as president or to run. That, that is not necessarily so. There are governors. There are people who've served, served at high, in high level of government. So um, I don't think that service in Congress, it used to be service in Congress was not that desirable uh, right. a quality. Right. And certainly Joe Biden has that in abundance. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest that. Finn, do you think the selection of the VP candidate will actually impact the campaign come November? A little bit, not a lot. I, I, you know, I think we're past the time when you had sort of a conventional wisdom that a candidate, a, a VP could deliver a state, or maybe even a region. Uh, also, I think that, you know, ever since Clinton picked Gore, we've kind of discredited the notion that you have to have an ideological balance on the ticket. Uh, Clinton picked somebody who was more like him, who reinforced the message that he was trying to send in that, in that election. But I think, all, you know, we, we tend to focus on a lot of these things, the, the convention, the debates, the what VP choice. And say, well, that's going to determine the election. No, it, it's not going to determine the election, but they all matter. 
the voters at the end of the day put all these things together in their minds and, and, and form an opinion about the candidate and his judgment and the direction in which he is likely to move the country. So I think the vice presidential choice does matter, even though I don't think it delivers a state or a voting block or anything like that. And uh, he's got, Biden has a lot of good choices he could make if he's not pressured by his party's left wing to pick somebody that will reinforce only an ideological left-wing image of the Democratic Party, he'll make a good choice. Uh, we've run out of time. If you just give me one minute, I just want to uh, make a few uh, quick announcements and let you folks go. We've got some great programs coming up. Uh, Black Lives Matter in the 2020 election. That is uh, going to be a terrific program. Uh, four of the smartest political scientists will be getting together uh, who know this topic, we've written about it, uh, July 15th, that's at noon uh, central, all these programs at that time. We've got a great program looking at the coronavirus and its impact on innovation and in healthcare. We've got some really terrific people um, from the healthcare industry um, and from the Minnesota uh, legislature coming to talk about that. And then that's on the 23rd of July. The 29th of July, we've got a really interesting program on the arc of conservatism uh, from the optimism and the majority orientation of Reagan to where we are now with Donald Trump. Peter Weiner, who is the, uh, who's at the uh, conservative think tank ethics and public policy, and David Hopkins, uh, a well-regarded political scientist at Boston College will be joining us. I wanna thank all of you for joining us. It's been great to have you. Uh, this recording of this event will be up in about a day. If you like this kind of programming, it's free and open, um, and you want to help support it, there's information here on how you can do that. We hope you'll take advantage of that. Um, I want to thank Mike Curry, who uh, made all this happen. We didn't lose any signals. That's because of Mike. Uh, I want to thank Kate Semino, who is our general. And mostly, I want to thank Vin Weber. Thank you so much, Vin. Always and a pleasure. David Axelrod. I hope, David Axelrod, you'll come back and uh, join Vin and I again. Love, love to. Great to be with you guys. Thank you, David. Thank you, Thank everybody. You. Have a great day.